at the beginning of a new series. Uh, it's entitled Songs from the Heart, and we're going to be looking over the next weeks at the issue of worship. Uh, so that's where we're heading over the next weeks, but before we begin this afternoon, why don't we pray? Father, we come before you. We are so thankful that we can be here this afternoon. There are many parts of the world where oppression uh, and uh, persecution stops your people being able to meet publicly, and we are really mindful of that at this point in time. We are thankful for the freedom that we have, and we, we recognize in so many ways we squander that freedom. We don't value it in the way that we should. And so we pray that we would be thankful that we can meet in your name. We pray that we, could, we would be thankful that we can join and worship you in a way which is visible, in a way which identifies us as part of your community. And so as we take this journey over these next weeks, when we think of worship, we pray uh, that our hearts might be moved and our minds taken to new affections, new commitments, new resolutions of the worship of God in the lives that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship is a great word, isn't it? It's very often associated, uh, if you've grown up or if you've been around the church for a long time, worship sits uh, very naturally in that kind of Christian language. But in a wider sense, I think worship is, is everywhere, isn't it? Worship is a common human experience. If we just think about that for a moment as, as a starting point, if you like, there is something about us as human beings which behaves in certain ways. Uh, we work, uh, we, we, we live, we act, we behave, we think as worshipers. Whether we believe in a God, whether we have any kind of faith or not, there are expressions of worship in all of our lives. Just imagine uh, the idea of of our experiences, whatever you enjoy, if it's out in the mountains, um, if it's at at the seaside, whatever it might be. There are moments when you are taken outside of yourself. Those moments where you you are connected uh, with, with a perspective which is bigger than you. And it is so satisfying to to be out of yourself. We live in a culture, don't we, which is so inward-focused that very often we have to pause and and remind ourselves that outward-focused, looking outside of ourselves, is actually a very satisfying place to be. We might look out on an incredible mountain scene. You've, you've climbed one of the, the highest peaks in this country. Let's not get too adventurous. Uh, let's just keep to this country. You've climbed one of the highest peaks in this country. Uh, and you look out and it is an amazing sight. And yet, in a moment, within minutes very often, that scene can be transformed from a beautiful sight to a place of horrifying danger, a place of life-threatening danger as the weather comes in and it changes. At one moment you're looking out on the site and then in another moment the site is gone and you're suddenly fighting for your life. 
You might look not to scenes, you might look to people. People who you aspire to be like. Great sports people, great thinkers, uh, whatever it might be. Some great sports person who, in all sorts of ways, not, not just because of what they've achieved, but because what they identify is some kind of ability to triumph over our adversary in life, the things that we are weak because of. Uh, and we have this sporting hero who has managed to, to break those things that we fear. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's some life-threatening illness, and this person has broken through that. And then they are suddenly achieving, and, and we place all of our hope we look outside of ourselves, and we bring worship to that individual, and, and it carries us. And then we find that perhaps that success, the foundation has been doping or some other kind of cheating. I think those kind of experiences just point us in a way as we begin to the idea that worship is something that we innately are part of, and yet worshiping in this world carries so many dangers. There are so many ways in which what we worship can bite us back, can fail us. We might worship a relationship It is everything to us. That person is everything to us. And then we realize that in some way or another, we are let down. And when we suddenly recognize that in this world, everything that we look to outside of ourselves carries dangers. We can be thwarted in our hopes. And so on this journey, what I want us to consider is how Christian worship, that looking outside of ourselves, is a unique experience, a satisfying experience, and a secure experience. It will not let us down. That's really important, isn't it, as we begin. If I'm committing to something, I need to know that it won't let me down. I think maybe as we think about that, we, sh- we should probably just for a moment define the idea of worship. Our English word worship comes from uh, the old English uh, kind of joining together of words of worth-ship, giving worth to something. That, that kind of stacks up, doesn't it, with what we've been thinking about. We are giving worth something better than I could ever be when I look at a great scene outside of myself, I am giving that scene worth, and I am gaining benefit from giving that scene worth. It is building me up, it is satisfying me. That worship, that giving of value, is something which is the foundation of Christian worship. Paul describes it in this way when he takes a really big idea of worship, What does it really mean in in all of our being to worship? And he says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's kind of, he's he's written a whole, a huge section to the Romans about the foundation of the gospel of Jesus. And he said, "This this is really secure. 
You can really believe this. And then in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says this, Therefore, because of all that I've told you before, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of the mercy that God has given you, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, giving myself in all of my being, giving it to something outside of me that is worthy of my giving. That is really profoundly important, isn't it? We might enjoy some things. And and let let me just kind of pause and say there is nothing wrong with climbing to the top of a mountain and looking out at the view and being satisfied with it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with following sport or, or art or whatever it might be and finding satisfaction in it. But is it something that I can give everything to? That's what Paul is asking. Can I give my whole being? I think that just prods us another little, a little bit further down the line of saying that whole being idea, my, my, my body, what does that mean, that whole of me? That's what we're going to be looking at this afternoon. What does the whole of me look like? So we've thought about the idea that we are naturally worshippers. We've recognized that Paul says that we are whole person worshippers. The kind of the buzz word that's being used in all sorts of ways is holistic. The whole of me worshippers. So if you keep that in mind over the next uh, few weeks. The whole of me worshippers. How can we see that? I want us to take a journey. Uh, to imagine ourselves 900 BC. Solomon's temple has been built, uh, and we are God's people in that place at that time. And we find ourselves involved, engaged in the worship of God. We're singing a song, Psalm 8. We're going to be looking at Psalm 8 this afternoon as we we consider it. But before we start going through the individual, the detailed lines of this psalm, I just want to pause and I just want to think for a minute. We're singing. Psalm 8, as we read it, we read it earlier, Psalm 8 is ideas and thoughts which are written on a page And we reflect on them, but we've got to pause and say, hang on a sec. It it wasn't necessarily like that for God's people, 900 BC. Yes, it was written down, but it was sung. I want to imagine what it would be like if we were gathered together, maybe a group of people about this size, and we were making our way up towards the temple, up towards the outer courts, And we're singing Psalm 8 together. Singing this song. Isn't it amazing? Can you imagine what it would be like as we get towards the temple and we hear our voices bouncing back off the walls as they echo towards us? 
as we hear our, our little gathering of voices mixing with the sounds of other singing going on in different places. Can you get a feel for how moving that is? How incredible that would be if we were engaged in that kind of worship of God. I don't know what the tune would be like, and I definitely can't pronounce the Hebrew for you. I know that the tune wouldn't be any tune that we have, and I know probably that the pitch and meter and all of that kind of tacky music stuff would be different to our kind of singing, but there would be something breathtaking about what we're doing at that moment in time. Just stepping back from the details of Psalm 8, just think about that. God has said, one of the elements of worship, the worship of me, and this series is, is probably looking at more the gathering of us together and what it means when we gather to worship, One of the elements of the worship of me is the creative action and and activity of singing. Voices raising and dropping and patterns emerging so that the words are there, but it's not just the words, is it? It moves up and down. It, It creates a beauty alongside the words. It's singing. It's what God has said, this is part of the worship of me. I love that. I love that God has said, worship me, not just with words, not just with thoughts and ideas, but with all of the creative energy of this unique activity of singing. How passionate is God for singing? How passionate is God for that creative experience, that that moment of beauty when when words hit a certain note and and it's not just that word that hits us, it's the echo of that particular pitch and tone coming back off the temple walls. How passionate is God about that? Here's how passionate God is about singing. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17 says this, the Lord your God is with you. That's great news, isn't it? The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. That That is amazing news for God's people, isn't it? God will take delight in us you know, sometimes I think our Christian experience is, God's accepted me. It is way beyond that. It's just so far beyond that. It's not even, that's not even first base in a way. God delights in us. How delighted is God in us? He will take great delight in you. In His love, He will no longer rebuke you. I think rebuke comes as a stern voice, doesn't it? But he goes in the opposite direction and it says this, but will rejoice over you with singing. 
I, I don't, I can't even begin to imagine what it must sound like when God sings. I, I can't begin to imagine what that might sound like. I, can't, I, I can only just kind of in my mind conceive of what it might be like as a collective gathering of us walking up the, towards the temple, singing Psalm 8, bouncing back off the walls and hitting us and hearing those different... Li- I can just about imagine that, but I can't get close to imagining what it sounds like when God sings. But I tell you this, it will be beautiful. And He's singing about you if you trust and believe in Him. That is amazing, isn't it? How low do you feel this afternoon? How desperate do you feel? How much of a failure do you feel? How how weak do you feel? How half-hearted do you feel? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Him, God says... I will no longer rebuke you. I will rejoice over you with singing. I'm blown away with the idea that God sings over me. I I imagine in that scene a, a little baby in a cot troubled, distressed, but the sound of a mother's voice singing over that little one brings soothing, brings calm. It's a voice which is recognized. It's a voice which that little one knows they are undoubtedly loved as that voice sings out. And God sings over you. I want to hear that. I I want to hear that. One day, I think we will. But for now, we need to know that it happens. And believe and trust that it happens. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the first thing... If we can get Psalm 8 up on the screen, that'd be great, Martin. We've got Psalm 8 up here. It's a song. The second thing is, this is really obvious, but we mentioned earlier about the idea of coming along singing tomorrow. Great, come along and sing tomorrow. But we're not going to be singing alone in the shower. (laughs) This is a gathering. In this particular idea, worship is about being gathered together. It's about a community of voices. It's about voices together. What does being together mean for you and me? We we know very little about what corporate worship in the Old Testament was like. I'm envisioning what it might have been like. It, it does there isn't there aren't any clear evidences that give us an absolute clear understanding of what it was like to worship in the temple apart from the sacrificial system. We don't know really, but we know that God's people gathered together. We know that there was singing, 
but we know that it was together. Together does a few things. It, it builds me up. Being together builds me up. When I can't sing, I love to hear other people singing around me. It builds me up. But it tempers me as well. It stops me from being only what I like. Or, or maybe only according to my particular tastes. Or according to my own particular inclinations. Being together builds us up and holds us back. It, it grows us and knits us to a togetherness. And so this idea of corporate worship is something profoundly deep and so important that we, we understand what is going on as we worship together. I want to think about this, this uh, psalm in, in four areas. Four areas which in a way look back towards Romans 12 and ask the question, what does it mean for us to worship our whole being? The first is this. Psalm chapter 8 and verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. First thing that we see if we understand and if we engage in this, is that our hearts are moved. Worship demands that our hearts are moved. That opening phrase, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That idea of Lord, our Lord, the togetherness of, the, of that phrase, the repeatedness of that phrase is a sense of, of inner movement. It's not just a case of saying, Lords of heaven and earth. I'm moved by it. I'm changed by it. I look around and, and my heart is moved. Christian worship demands that our hearts are moved. And, and our worship also very often is experienced with our hearts not moved. <laughs> that, that's, that's the kind of paradox, isn't it? Christian worship demands that our hearts are moved, and yet our experience is that our hearts are very often not moved. And therefore, we have things like songs and ways of expressing language and speaking and thinking which says to us, every one of us, to worship the living God, we need to engage in a way which moves my heart. It moves me. It's something which is life-changing. It's something which I am safe to give myself to because the worship of God and the giving of my heart it is a safe thing to do. It's not going to be abused. It's not going to be downtrodden. It's not going to be forgotten. I give my heart and I allow myself to be moved. 
I wonder whether when we arrive on a Sunday or when we arrive on a Tuesday or when we arrive in our life groups or any other context where we gather together expecting to worship God, I wonder whether our idea as we arrive is this, I expect and hope and I'm determined that my heart is moved. I want to be. I have to be. I'm unlikely to be in my own strength. I'm unlikely to be according to my own inclinations. But I come to this and I say, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's like, wow. Wow. My heart is moved. The second is this. My soul is moved. My heart is my inclinations. My soul is my emotional state. Look at the way the psalm carries on. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Where is that tagged on to? It's tagged on to that you've set your glory in the heavens. You've set your glory in the heavens and the praise of children and infants have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foes and avengers. Well, what a kind of comparison is that? On the one hand, I want to just pause for a minute. Let, let's, let's just imagine we've arrived at the temple and we've heard these voices of song bouncing back towards us. But what did you do last night? Let me tell you what I did last night. I went outside of the city and in the blackness of of the Judean sky, I lay down on the ground and looked up at the glory of heaven. I could see way more than we can see because I don't live with light pollution. I saw shooting stars and colors emerging from the sky around me and I am amazed. My emotions are moved. And then as we gather towards the temple, I hear cries and coos and the sounds of children and infants. How, mu- how insignificant does the sound of a little baby seem in comparison to the glory of the night sky? How, how irrelevant in one sense. And yet God says those little voices... Those sounds, which don't even make up words, the cries and the sounds and the, the, the voices of a little one are praise to God. My affections are moved by that. There are times when those kind of things and those kind of ideas that God on the one hand displays Himself in the splendor of this universe 
and then cares about a little coup, a little blubber from a tiny little baby. I, I don't know. I, am, I think I am just too hard to not be moved to tears for my soul to be moved when I consider that the God who I worship cares about those two things. My soul is moved when I think that God is that kind of God who, who, who creates this spectacle. You ever thought of that? I don't know all of the complexities of, of how this created order appeared, but I know this. God created it. And He could have created it in a whole different way. He could have created it so that when we look up, we see nothing. When we look out, we see black and white. When we hear, we only hear in monotone. And yet God has given us this, this stimulus this soul-moving stimulus so that little babies who are coming to terms with the world that they live in, who are looking around and seeing the, the different shapes and the colors and are beginning to orientate themselves in a profoundly innocent way, are praising God with the, with the little voices. Do you know what I love about our church? I love the noise of little ones. I love the fact that there, is, there are voices and well, well-timed, Sophia. That is just brilliant. I, I love it. Why? Because those little moments in the gathered community of God's people worshipping, are precisely the things that God, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful God, values. He values that we gather together as a family. He values those sounds that don't mean anything to us. Later on, these little voices, so we have both infants, babies, and children, identified in this psalm. Later on, Jesus clears the temple out of indignation at what the temple has become. The blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them instead of the money changing. When the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things He did and the children shouting out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David. Well, I don't know what that was like in the temple, in the courts, little gangs of roving children waving bits of cloth, shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, something like that, just wandering around, playing games as they jumped off stone steps, Hosanna to the Son of David, and the chief priests are indignant and says, this is a terrible thing, and Jesus turns around and he says, uh, <clears throat> You have, you, have you read? Jesus turns around and says, have you read? From the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth praise. <laughs> you think you're so big and so powerful 
And you think you know all the right ways to worship me and you haven't understood. It's not about the forms of what you do. It's about where your heart and your soul are. And so the worship of God is about our heart. It's about our soul and it's about our mind. You know, very often I think, I think our minds are pretty engaged in worship. We think about, we kind of, we come to a moment like this and we're thinking about what the Bible says and, and, and that's absolutely right. But, but if our hearts aren't moved and our soul isn't moved and it's all about our mind, we're nowhere. But then if our heart and soul are moved and we don't think about what we're on about, we're going to be like, we're going to be like straws in the waves tossed backwards and forwards. Because you know, last night when I was lying on that Judean hillside, looking out at this spectacular scene above me, I pondered. It's actually what we're singing now. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, I'm looking up at those things and I'm thinking, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? human beings, that you care for them. That's where my mind went. It went to that analysis. You see, the emotion of what I see above me, my soul is moved, the tears are running down my face, my heart is moved to, to look at God and think, you are above everything in this world. And then I think, objectively, why would you care about mankind? Why would you care about mankind? What is there about humanity that makes us of any value to you? Or, or maybe let's just take it down one notch and ask this question. What is there about humanity that makes us of any value at all in this world that is created. <laughs> I'm looking out at the sky and stars and thinking, I am insignificant. Those stars have been around however long. I'm seeing light that is older than my great-great-grandfather. <laughs> Why do you care about me? You see, my mind is moved in worship. I'm caused to think. And it's the securing of those ideas that become the, the kind of anchor ropes that secure my heart, that secure my soul. My mind engages in what it means to think about this God. How can I respond? How can I see where I fit? The fourth thing that we see is that our strength is engaged in worship. Because what we are commissioned to do is our reason for existence. Look at what it says. You have made them, that's human beings, you've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made humanity 
less than the angels, we're not in the heavenly realms, we're here on earth, but we are crowned with glory and honor. Something of you has been given to us. It's why my heart has been moved in the first place. It's why my soul has been engaged. It's why my mind has been engaged. I'm not a sheep that is just still chewing the cud from what it's at that day. Not caring one jot about the sky around. Not pondering their existence. Not moved emotionally. It's because something of God has been placed on me. Something of your glory and honor has been placed on us. So that what you have created becomes ours to look after. Do you see that? You made them rulers over the works of your hand. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. You have given this world for us to tend. And we are to tend it in the light of the glory and honor that you have placed on us. We live in this world for your glory. And so, our our concern for the world that we live in, our horrors at the way the world is being kind of ground to a place of of pollution and mess, (laughs) is not how we should see the world. It's a place that we should care for and tend. And in its impossible journey to crisis... We're secured in the knowledge that the world that God will create for eternity will be resolved and restored. But for now, we have a place to be. That is a big picture of what it means to be a person. Our heart is moved. Our soul is engaged. Our mind is enacted. And our hands are moved to do things. And all of that can be the worship of God. Jesus put it like this. Somebody came to him and he said, what is it to, teacher, what is it that I have to do to gain eternal life? Jesus said, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Jesus said, He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is holistic worship. Every part of me engaged in glory to God. Now, as we gather this afternoon, if it's not directed towards God, Number one, it is ultimately futile. And number two, it is ultimately dissatisfying. And so our journey over these next weeks is to think about that heart, soul, mind, and strength in the context of what it means when we gather in this way.
and to help us to understand, am I really gathering in that way? Or am I just coming along? And is it something which is the worship of God or me looking to see what I can get out of it? I hope our journey, by God's grace, proves to bring glory to Him.